Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. If you are listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do, as it really does give the show a little boost and you will genuinely make my day. I'm still in the process of mulling over what I want the Desert Island Dishes newsletter to contain. I'm currently thinking it might be monthly, possibly fortnightly thing, but I do know it will be very good and you won't want to miss it. So do go to desertislanddishes.co and you can sign up and come and join the gang. So I only recently met Cloder after following her career from afar when I got to go to the most delicious dinner party at her house. She certainly is the hostess with the mostess. There was dancing between each course and the most delicious food. As it's Valentine's Day today, whether you're celebrating that or Valentine's Day, Cloda has got a delicious menu suggestion for what you should make if you've got someone in your life you would like to impress. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Cloda McKenna. Cloda is a chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, and a broadcaster. Originally from Ireland, she's been cooking professionally for 20 years. She's the author of six cookbooks. Her latest one, Cloda's Suppers, came out at the start of this year and is completely gorgeous. In spring 2018, she became the weekly food columnist for the Evening Standard, and she has regular slots on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch in the UK, the Today Show and the Rachel Ray Show in America, plus several more in Canada. Her latest TV show, Cloda's Irish Food Trails, gained more than 15 million viewers on PBS in America. Welcome, Cloda. Oh, I'm very excited (laughs) to be on your podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. 15 million viewers on PBS. Can we just talk about that? That's, can you even get your head around that? Yeah, I don't, I actually, it's only when you know people like you mention it that I actually, I never really think about it. It was basically, I filmed five television shows in Ireland. Two of them are called Fresh from the Farmer's Markets and three of them are called Fresh from the Sea. And in those shows, I traveled around with various farmers and fishermen, obviously for the sea. Yeah. <laughs> One, I was with fishermen all around the coast of Ireland and went out and did all various types of fishing and found out their wonderful stories and then cooked fish. And with the farmer's markets one, it was a real passion of mine to really highlight the farmer's market because I'd been involved in setting up and running farmer's markets for a three-year period yeah. in Ireland. So it was great to document it. And then PBS in America bought all five shows and made it and edited it down into one very long, big show called Clothes Irish Food Trails. And then with PBS in America, how it works is that, say I'm Northern California, I am PBS Northern California and I have to buy into it. Okay. And so we were kind of wondering, oh, you know, then we got an email like, oh, three years old you know, to New York State and, you know, I know Boston and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yay. And then we kept on getting more emails and emails and emails. And 98% of the PBS stations across America bought it. That's incredible. And it became, it just became, it just kept on getting reshown and reshown and reshown. They're still showing it. And that really launched me in America. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And I, I think I read that the population of Ireland is just less than five million. So it's three times oh, yeah. the population of Ireland. Which, I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of people. And I love watching you on TV. Like you're always dancing and you just make it seem so fun and you seem so confident. But I wondered, do you ever get nervous? Um, do you know what? I do less now these days. But definitely at the start doing, let's say, the very big shows like the Today Show in America, I used to get a little bit nervous beforehand, but then I kind of quickly worked on different techniques to help me with kind of calming the nerves because it's really good having a little bit of nerves, but you can't allow them to overcome you because if they become too too nervous on TV, it's really awkward viewing and you don't enjoy it. And the most important thing is to enjoy it because when you enjoy it, the viewer enjoys it and you've got to be really present when you're doing TV 
and you've got to feel so relaxed that you're completely yourself and do gaga things like dancing. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fun to watch though. Before we get started, I wondered, how do you think you'll get on on the desert island? Are you okay in your own company or? I am. I do love my own company, but then I also love loads of people. I would think I'd probably be fine for about three days and then I'd be looking for natives to come and have a close of supper at me. Yeah, to do some dance <laughs> on the with. beach. That'd be so cool. <laughs> if anyone could do that, it would be you, Clover. So you grew up in Cork. So let's talk about your first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. It would definitely have to be soda bread. Ooh. I think anybody who's from Ireland and definitely grew up in my era would have great memories of their mom or their dad making soda bread growing up. It's such a big part of the Irish kitchen. And it was a bread that I learned how to make so early on in really? life. Like I can, my earliest childhood memories of on Saturday mornings, the bread be made and it was made for practical reasons. And it was made to have lovely, good quality bread for the week. And I call, I now make it now. It's called, I make a variation of it. It's called my rosemary clover bread. Yeah, I know. I was going to say you call it clover bread. Yeah. I, I actually didn't <laughs> name it that. It was somebody else that named it that. It was um, a songwriter that named it that and he made a rap about it. <gasps> no way. Yeah. I was going to say, we don't have to give anyone else credit, but maybe we do if they're a rapper. That's very cool. So what's the secret to a great soda bread? The secret to a great soda bread is mixing the soda in first properly with all the rest of the flowers because otherwise you'll get little green little bits okay in it the second thing is to not over knead it or sorry or not over kind of mix it together so i always use a fork to bring the wet ingredients into the dry ingredients because a fork you kind of keep nice and light and i always say in your mind always think lightness lightness and you just bring it all in all very gently and then with your hands then you can cusp it all together gently there's no kneading involved no proofing involved you just shape it and then into the hot oven and then reduce it down the heat so you get that lovely golden crustiness but you're also cooking it through and then the other secret is to have it with friends and not cut it and to tear it so it's called the breaking of the bread I love doing (laughs) so I always have a you know a loaf of it in the middle of the table whenever I have any supper it's kind of like it's almost as important to me as the candles and whoever is new to the house or whoever is the youngest or maybe it's their birthday they're the ones who get up and they actually break bread oh that's so nice yeah it's so lovely and kind of a nice tradition to keep going. A really nice tradition. I love that. And I read that every summer as a child, you went to France on a sort of exchange. An exchange. Yeah. How was that? Because you must have eaten delicious food. Delicious food. Yeah. I was so young. It was so different back then. I was 13 when I set off on the ferry and was met by a French family on the other side. And I was there for two weeks. And then I got on so well with the French family. They asked me to come back for the whole summer (gasps) then. Um, which and whilst was, you were going over, was one of their children coming, coming back to and yeah. she loved it. She? And we just, it was just became, we became like second families to each other. And so then I spent much longer the, the next time and I got on really well with the mom, uh, Madame Ronzin, and she was a stay at home mom and an amazing cook. And I learned so much from her from such an early age. I remember I used to come back with all enthused about like, Dauphinoise. I don't think I could even pronounce it then. I was talking, I was calling it Daphne was. <laughs> That's also a good name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And having the first, you know, French pastries, things I never would have accessed growing up, you know, in the country in Ireland in the 80s. That's why I think things like that are just so important, aren't they? Yeah. To sort of push you outside of your comfort zone and see things that you would never normally see. Yeah, absolutely. And years later, you would go to New York to study business before coming back to Ireland and doing the cookery course at Ballymaloo. Tell us a little bit about that, because growing up in Cork, you would have been very aware of Ballymaloo and the sort of empire that Myrtle and Darina Allen were building. What was it that made you eventually decide to go there? When I finished university in Stern and NYU and I came back, my whole idea was to set up like a, a Starbucks or something like that because there was no coffee chains in Ireland. And I was very kind of business focused and blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, God, I need to learn a little bit about food, you know, for this. And I always loved food. So I thought, you know, I'll do a cookery course, but it's expensive, but it's worth it. Yeah. 
So I went and my mother co-signed a loan for me at the local credit union, which is like a bank co-op and um, got the loan. And my dad was like, I can't. We actually didn't tell my dad until the day before I was going because he was like, I can't believe my daughter's doing a cookery course. You've just come back from the best business schools in the world (laughs) on scholarship. And I went and did the course and I'd say one week into the course, I never thought about business again. I just fell in love with food. I really understood that this, there's nothing else I want to do than this. And I'm so glad that I did it at the time. At the time I did it, you know, it was 20 years ago now. It was a time in Ireland where there wasn't access to good food. I mean, there was no farmer's markets, really. You know, the whole food, there was no kind of big tea, food shows on TV, it wasn't like the way it is now. And the only option for me, the only thing that I had in my head was that I was going to be a chef. Mm. That was it. It was all very... That was sort of what a career in food meant because there weren't exactly any other options. Exactly. And that's what my parents thought, okay, you're going to be going to the kitchen and cooking for the rest of your life. Yes. And that was it. And so I never thought beyond that. And which I'm so glad because it kept me so focused. And I knew from the very beginning, taking a path that was really hard work, and working grueling 14 hours, six days a week. And it was exhausting work because when I left the cookery course, I then got a job at Balmaloo House. Okay. Which is, which is the, one of the best hotel yeah. restaurant part of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the best restaurants in Ireland and so busy. I mean, like we'd be doing 180 for dinner and I'd be on, you know, doing the fish course. And so like within a matter of three hours, I'd be trying to plate up, you know, a hundred fresh, beautiful dishes of fish, perfectly cooked to the family standard and all out and cooked from scratch and everything. So it was the most amazing training of my life. And my, my, we'll say my cooking work ethic, um, my knowledge, I just completely absorbed myself in it. I think I actually left Balamaloo in the three years that I was there, I'd say maybe like a handful of times. Really? Yeah, I was there all the time because you're working every weekend. and it it, was... It's just that kind of place though, isn't it? Because I, I did the 12-week course as oh, well. Oh, did you? Yeah, and it was my first time going to Ireland and I just completely fell in love with the place and the course. It's just so life-changing, isn't it? it? Is. And it, I can totally relate to you going there and just forgetting about starting a start. Yeah. Because it's just, I don't know, it kind of just shows you, if you're really passionate about food, it shows you what your life could be and it feels absolutely. so exciting absolutely and Doreen and Myrtle they're so inspiring yeah. they're super women and Doreen is a really good friend has been for a long time and I absolutely I absolutely adore her yeah let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook the first dish that I learned to cook would be I would say probably properly would have been the gratin dauphinoise I mentioned earlier in France so I remember Madame Ronsan in France, she would do all the main dishes, but then she'd get us to do, you know, the kind of more side dishes. And I remember in my head as a kid in France, doing the gratin dauphinoise and mixing the cream together in a whisk and a saucepan overheat, you know, with the milk and adding in loads of fresh nutmeg into it and the smell of the fresh nutmeg. I'd never grated fresh nutmeg before that. I think I must have been 13. And I remember the smell of the nutmeg and great and I'm um, crushing up the garlic and smelling it in my fingers and, <laughs> and, you know, all slicing all the potatoes and yeah, it was so beautiful. And eating it after it, that was the most delicious thing I'd ever had in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and so had you always been interested in food, like as always. a child? And so always, yeah. you then deciding to to pursue a career in food, people weren't really surprised. I mean, I know maybe your dad was after you'd done business school, but was it, it felt like a natural thing for you to yeah, do? Absolutely. And it's funny, one week into doing the cookery course, I came back at the first weekend and the first thing that I had made when I was on my cookery course was an apple clove jelly. Ooh. And I brought it back and I remember I was so excited about it and I put it down on the kitchen table and I went upstairs and I came back down and my dad was sitting at the table and he was crying. And my dad was quite like a stern. I think I remember him crying once before my life. Um, that was at his mom's funeral. And I got really worried. I thought, oh my God, I wonder like, is he okay? I was like, are you okay, dad? Are you all right? And, and he, oh God, it makes me tearful thinking about it. And he put his hand in his face and he just went, I haven't had that taste since granny used to make this when um, I was growing up. And he goes, this is so special. And I remember thinking, oh my God, the impact 
that taste has and how it throws you back to a memory that no other sense can do it. You can't get that true pictures. You can't get a true video. You can't get a true anything. And especially now, I think it's a really important time to remember this, that we all live so much fire or phones, you know, trying to capture moments to our phones when we need to be more present and capturing them with food around the table is a memory that will stay with us forever. And it's so impactful. And yeah, that was a really incredible food experience for me or life experience. Actually. Yeah. So even if at that point you hadn't decided you were set on food, I bet in that moment, it kind of decided everything. Yeah, it was all natural. It was as if it was kind of meant to be. I mean, I was so young as well that I never really thought about anything. And, you know, and I've always been kind of no, never, pl- I still don't really plan. I never really planned anything. I know I'm not really good planner ahead. I'm very organized, but I'm never big planner for next year or whatever. And I just kind of went with it and just loved it. It completely overtook me. I used to love, I always remember when this gets so intense during service, I used to love creating a plate and looking at it and you would always look at it. And then the head chef would look, overlook it before it went out and looking at it. And might, it might've been like the wild garlic season. And when it was wild garlic season, we'd have to go to the woods in the morning and collect all the fresh wild garlic and have beautiful wild garlic flowers tripling over the fish. I remember sending out and I, the pleasure I knew that I would give to somebody when it arrived on their their plate and maybe then that would be a food memory for them. Yeah. And I always loved that. I always loved the moments and the memories that food creates. That's what really is in my heart with food. Mm, that's such a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. So after you worked at Ballymaloo House, you then started running farmers markets mm-hmm. around Ireland and you also had your own stall and you made your own patties. That must have been really exciting because farmers markets, they didn't really exist before then. So you were a sort of farmers market pioneer. Um, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, there were probably about five and I got involved while I was still at, you know, working in the Balmaloo house on the, I used to basically stay up on Friday night after service, make fresh pasta and go in and sell it on the store in the stall inside there. And then I left the kitchens to actually go full time in the market. Oh, you were making pasta, not pate? Both. Oh, both. Okay. Yeah. When I first started, I was just doing fresh pasta. Okay. Because I could do that. I could make the dough up on Thursday night. And then I used to actually roll it all out, make it fresh on Friday night. And I do all different Fridays. I guess you just weren't busy enough. I know. A full-time job in a restaurant. I know. (laughs) And then I went on to develop farmers markets around the country and go into community halls and talk to farmers about how they could, you know, bring their food or their you know, for example, if they were a, a dairy farmer, could they be making butter at home to sell in the farmer's markets? And it was such an exciting kind of food revolution. Mm. And during that period as well, I got involved with running Slow Food Ireland. Yes. And Darina was involved and Jaina Ferguson. So the three of us really worked very hard together on everything from farmer's markets to slow food, etc. Ireland is such an exciting place. And I think I, I mean, it sounds so ignorant, but I kind of only realized when I went there to Ballymaloo, there are so many incredible food producers. It must have been so exciting to be involved in something where you were, you were getting to showcase them and helping them to sort of, I don't know, step onto the world stage, I guess. Yeah, we, I think we were all kind of inspiring each other. Yeah. It was so exciting, you know, when, especially when you know, we'd pitch up your stall and I'd be setting up my stall in the morning. And then beside me would be, you know, Belveli Frank Hedeman, who I've known since I was a child because he's my uncle's best friend. So I remember being a little kid and watching him on his 21st birthday, which, you know, and, and then having to smoke salmon, his, the, the, when the first of their ever smoked salmon that he ever smoked and you know, having a stall beside me. And then, you know, next up then would be, you know, Ted from the Ballycotton Potatoes and all these amazing producers. It was like a family. We were like a family together. It was a really exciting time. There was so much support for everybody. And what I loved about it was that it was so inclusive. Nothing about it was exclusive. So you came along to the market, everybody could access this good food. It was for the locals, supporting locals, great kind of local economy being, you know, being supported. And it's just everything about it was right. 
you know, everything about it was right. Oh, what a cool thing to have done. Yeah. I think one of the best things for me, I mean, there were loads of really good things that came out of Ballymaloo, but one of them was Gabin. This is the best cheese I've ever tasted. And I think when I came back after those 12 weeks, I was sort of 99% Gabin. <laughs> so much of it. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh my gosh. I sometimes think that dishes that you've eaten are all about where you've eaten them and who you were with and blah, blah, blah. I think one of the best dishes I've ever eaten, well, it's actually like, well, it's it's a food, it's an oyster. Okay. And there is this family called the Kellys and they are in Galway and they do the most incredible, they're like five generation, they do these native Galway oysters. And I love the family so much, especially Michael Senior, who would be in his late 80s. And he always wears a suit and he's a pioneer in that he doesn't drink alcohol. He has his badge on it. He's very old school Irish gentleman. And when I was bringing some Italian friends over to experience like the coast of Ireland, and we were photographing it as well for my book. And I'd been to visit them loads of time. And I was like, please, can Mr. Kelly be there? And so he was there and we all put on our wellies and he was like, come on, we're gonna, let's go down into the water. And so he was in his suit. <laughs> can you imagine, you know, like blazer proper, like, you know, <laughs> three-piece suit in his wellies. And we walked right out onto the sea. And in the back, he had he had saved this bottle of champagne that had been given to him about 30 years ago. And he saved it for me. We had a very special relationship and he saved it for me. And he had it tucked in his trousers in the back underneath his thing. And he had an oyster chucker with him, an oyster knife. And so we were gathering the oysters from the sea and he was opening them up. And there was the most beautiful, incredible light. And we were out in the Atlantic you know, up as far as our wellies could bring us. And he was chucking the oysters first. We were eating the oysters and then he opened up the bottle of champagne and we were taking it from the neck. But everything was so special about it. The history, the fact that he had kept, you know, he had opened this up for me, eating these incredible oysters that have such an incredible history in Ireland. The taste of them was so amazing. And I knew the faces on my friends, that this was a moment that they would remember and tell their children and their grandchildren and everything about forever, because nothing could top that moment. It was so special. That sounds amazing. Mm. Those moments are kind of overwhelming, aren't they? When you're sort of aware that something like that is happening, that you know, you're just never going to forget. And you're just sort of trying to soak in as much of it as possible. Yeah. Oh, that just sounds incredible. So you have done so many things and preparing for this interview, I did kind of feel like I had to be quite selective about what we're going to talk about. But let's talk about when you went to Italy, after you'd done the farmer's market in Ireland, you went to Italy and lived there for sort of three or four years um, working with the slow food movement. And for anyone who might not be familiar, who's listening, tell us a little bit more about that. Because am I right that that whole movement started in Italy kind of in order to reject McDonald's? Basically, it would start it up to protect the winemakers, okay. wine producers. So not McDonald's, Margie. <laughs> Which, you know, they actually did release that story, but I think they did that just to capture people's imagination, okay. well, which it was a really good thing. <laughs> and, and you need that, right? Yeah. But it was actually started up to protect um, the winemakers around the um, the region of the Langa, which would be the Barolo winemakers and the Barbera wine, the Barbaresco, etc. And they wanted to help kind of promote these small little vineyards. And that what that's how it started, because it started in a little town called Bra by a man called um, Carlo Petrini, Carlo Petrini. Um, who's still the head of Slow Food. And that's where all the offices are. And that is where one of the towns in the Langa region, right next door to Alba. And it grew and grew and grew. And basically, I guess the most important thing that Slow Food does is that it lobbies with the government and food policies, etc., to protect, we'll say, small endangered productions of food to be a kind of allowed produce the way they should be producing to for tradition. Okay. So for example, if I am a cheesemaker in the south of Italy and I am making a cheese that has been made there for over a hundred years and I make it with these specific ingredients and it's got a heritage about it and 
a regionality about it. Um, Slow Food can come in and help create a paper around it. Okay. In order for that to be protected and nobody else can actually make this cheese anywhere else if it's called the fromage de Sicilia or something like yeah. that. You know, it, it's protected. Okay. So is that the same thing that would have happened to champagne? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And they do it kind of in a lot more in a bigger way. And if it's very, very special during a thing called Presidia. So the Presidia of Slow Food basically it goes into this it's almost like an award thing that you're part of the Slow Food Presidia and Slow Food will help market it and all the rest. And it really just does connects people more about the food that they're eating. Yeah. It's a gl- really big global organization. It works really well in some countries. It works really well in Ireland. It, work- it works well in the West Coast of America. It works well in obviously in Italy. It works well in France. Um, there are some countries it works really well in. That's so interesting. And did you speak Italian before you went there? No, but I speak French or I spoke French. So that definitely helped. And I just, yeah, I just kind of had to jump in and learn it. It was frightening. You're a very brave person, sort of going to France at a really young age. And then I feel like, were you just trying to take opportunities as they came? Like you've already said you didn't really have a bigger plan. So were you just going where the opportunities were and and trying to sort of carve your way? I think that are just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Mine sounds way better. I just have no fear. My mother's like that. My mother would always push me to be adventurous. So I think I'm definitely adventurous. I never plan or think, oh, that would be a great thing to do because, you know, I just go with instinct of like, oh my God, that'd be such a great adventure. That would be such a great experience. Do it for the story. With Italy. I Yeah, it would just be, when am I ever going to go and live in Italy again? I've just got to do it. I can't speak Italian. I actually didn't even think about the fact that I couldn't oh. speak Italian. <laughs> Genuinely. I mean, that says a um, lot about you. Yeah, yeah. So now you can speak Italian and French. Yes. That is very cool. And and I guess, you know, one of the things about the slow food movement that's only becoming more and more relevant is is this seasonality and of ingredients and of cooking. And that's something that really comes through in your new cookbook, Clodagh's Suppers. It's sort of all about making the most of what's in season. Why on a smaller scale is that important to you when it comes to cooking? It's so important for so many different reasons. A, everything tastes better when it's in season. Secondly, you're supporting local farmers because farmers you know, grow in season. So if if you're not buying or eating in season, you're buying something that's A, imported or B, that's forced, you know, yeah. that's made. In, and which is absolutely fine because there's some things that we all love to eat and it's fine for, you know, a certain amount of your food. But for me, it the other thing is that it makes food so exciting. Yeah. Like the first of the forced rhubarb is just coming to season. And I'm like, I cannot wait. I have these, um, these, um, they're, rhubarb, rosewater and pistachio little galettes Ooh. in my book, Load of Suppers. And I haven't made them since last year. I just keep on thinking, I cannot wait to make these. I'm actually doing them in my workshops next week. Um, I can't wait to make them because they're so delicious and I get excited about all the rhubarb season. And every time I mention them, I think of a beautiful Easter um, lunch that we had last year. And I, I can't take the memory away from that. And it's so, they're so gorgeous. And that's why I think is so beautiful too, is that you live with the seasons, you get excited about the seasons. It's, it, it's really a lifestyle thing. Yeah. It really is. And it will add so much to your life. You know, it helps from, I mean, I know a lot of people suffer from kind of down periods during January and February, you know, the kind of the darker months, et cetera. And I think food can really help with your mood and lifting your mood that way. Getting excited about like different vegetables coming back into season and like cooking them so it gets your mind off things. And yeah, I I love that reframing it so that yeah, every month, every season, you've got new things to look forward to and yeah like sort of retraining your mind that you can't just have whatever you want whenever exactly you you go with when it's available I think that is really exciting a way to make sort of everyday cooking exciting again yeah let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish and that's your favorite sandwich my favorite sandwich my favorite sandwich it would probably have to be something with smoked salmon in it um so I go to New York every month 
And there is a place called Russ and Daughters, which is an old, the oldest actually Jewish deli. And when I'm flying back, I go there in the morning and I get my very, very thinly sliced smoked salmon and I get the bagel, I get the cream cheese and then some little capers and red onions. They actually have it all done up. So you go in and they know me now and I'll be like, oh, it's, I'm going to get my smoked salmon for the flight. And they'll put it together and they'll put sheets of, it's like freezing sheets in between it and into a little box. And I bring it on the flight with me. Oh and when I get on, I kind of wait about an hour. Like <laughs> and then I open it up and everybody's faces beside me are just like, oh, oh my God, she's got a Russ and Daughters bagel. And I open it up and I put together all my bagel with the cream cheese, the smoked salmon and lemon juice. Yeah, capers, um, shallots, finely sliced, bake, fresh bagel. Oh my God, it's so good and so good. And it makes me really excited about getting on the plane. Oh my God, me too. Let's go now. Let's go to the airport. That sounds incredible. Okay, so you get back from Italy and you opened your own restaurant. Yeah. Something I know that you had always sort of thought about doing, but you didn't know necessarily when when that would happen. But tell us a bit about that. Did it just get to the point where you knew it was the right time to do something on your own? Yeah, it was. A, it was um, when I was living in Italy, I kind of I'd gotten to the age where I think I was 30 at that point. Yeah. And I thought I either stay here and set up here. And I did look at it. I did look at maybe I should do a cookery school out here or something like that. And then I decided you know, I, I wanted to come home and then. So I came back and I did a presentation into Arnott's, which is a store owned by Selfridges Mm -hmm. in Ireland. And I did a big presentation to them. I went on for like about a year, six months, a year. And I finally won the concession after a long, long haul. I did. I actually, every time I went into a presentation, which was about 10 times, I brought in um, a cake. I made a fresh cake. I read about that. Did you? I, I found a quote where you said, Literally nothing fell into my lap. It was the complete opposite. We fought for this space for over a year, baking cakes and bringing them into proposals, everything. And there was a lot of people trying to get this. So they really had to believe in what I was doing. And I love that because you're clearly very determined and very persuasive and you you make great cakes. (laughs) But I also thought when I read that, was that kind of a helpful time for you? Because having to work that hard for something really cements it in your mind that it's what you want it definitely makes you question whether it's not you want Uh, it it was it was definitely it was a tricky time to be honest because it was you know I had to invest a lot in it and I didn't have an awful lot of capital in fact I had none (laughs) and um and so I knew I was up against the biggest catering companies in Ireland and the UK because a lot of them from the UK like the Jamie thingy they're all bidding for it as well and I had no experience of setting up and they were giving me huge space. So they were giving me three eateries. So a really big space, which was um, a dining experience for 180 people. Then a deli shop cafe, then the restaurant on the top floor, which is an 80 seater. So it was quite a lot. And that would be managing about 160 people. That's a huge undertaking. Yeah, I know. I know. I wish I'd known that then. (laughs) I mean, it really was. It overtook my life for all the time, the whole yeah. time I was. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah, seven but years. What cakes were you baking them to persuade? <laughs> <over there? laughs> um, my tart cake with orange blossom frosting, my banana cake with coconut frosting, my sticky figgy cake. What other ones did yeah, I, I feel do? Like a lot Pavlova. of these, a lot of these cakes are going to be turning up to meetings around London. Yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you were to go back in time and start a restaurant from scratch, is there anything that you would do differently? I think anybody who runs restaurants will tell you the hardest thing is managing a big team, trying to keep everybody happy, being professional, getting things really consistent because you have to have consistency in a restaurant. Service is the most important thing that you can, that you need to bring in a restaurant. So that is definitely the most challenging. You know, there's, when you're dealing with over 160 people, everybody has got, you know, issues going on at home or this, or they're not getting on with different staff and, and how you treat everybody fairly, but how you, you can't be their friend. You Mm. have to be their leader. And, and I think that was something that I learned after about two years. Does being a leader come naturally to you? Um, no, 
No, or maybe, I don't know, kind does it? (laughs) Does a leader come naturally to me? Do you think so? Am I? Okay, yeah, I'm a leader. Quote from Karen, my amazing PA. (laughs) Um, So I didn't think I was a leader. But um, But I guess it's just another thing that you're sort of learning as part of all of it is, you know, if you haven't been a leader, it's just a new, yeah, just another thing to add to the list of new experience. Yeah, I guess I I am now. I am probably now good at leading. Whereas, so if I go into a group and we've got, like I do loads of takeovers, like I've done, the last time I did big takeover was for Cheney Walk oh, yeah. um, for the flower show. And, and that was taking over for the week. And we were doing lunch and dinner every day for 80 people. And, you know, and I literally went in the morning of met the staff the week before that. And you very quickly, I mean, I changed the whole decor, the flowers, settings, menu, you know, ingredients, suppliers, everything. And then I was managing then about 25 staff that were already there and I had to bring them around to mine and I knew after and I remember the first two days I went in and they were all so lovely and friendly and everything and I remember I was so stern with everybody I wasn't you know I was kind of like slightly smiley but I was just like they don't need me to be smiley they need me to really lead them and guide them otherwise we're not going to get this right and then I'll be you know uh, you know nobody will be happy um and so I was quite certain. And then once you get past that point where everybody knows what they need to be doing, then you can kind of relax into being, you know, kind of connecting more mm. on a personal level with, with everybody in the team. But it's so important. I think it's something, sometimes I go into restaurants or cafes, whatever, and I can tell that the person who's on who's in there is not leading they're all super friendly and blah 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 to each other and you can kind of go oh my god that's what clears and all the rest that is not what I remember when I had Doreen and she was so stern so stern um and I at the time it was tough I really respect her now on how she led because it's so much easier to be like Oh, oh, that's fine. Everybody's fine. But she led and I learned so much from her. And so that's what I learned. The biggest learning curve that I learned from there was actually having respect for everybody and respect for what they needed from me. Mm. They needed to be, you know, showed what I, my my vision was that nobody can just jump in and presume that they know your vision. You have to communicate what your vision is and you've got to communicate it in a way and you've got to be consistent in how you are as a person. You can't come in one day and be all as high as mighty and, you know, you know, dancing around the place. And then the next day come in in quite stern and why isn't this done? And why isn't this, mm-hmm. this done? That is really unfair to people. That's really good advice. Yeah. You can't sort of have mood swings as a boss because people need to know what to expect. Absolutely. And you being, have to give yourself a check. And I used to always give myself a check in the car before I'd go in. And being able to separate who you are as a person who's like super friendly and lovely and nice and kind to who you are as a boss, which doesn't take away from who you are as a person. It's just what you've got to be in that role. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really yeah. Really consistent with your personality. Yeah. That's a top mm. tip, Cloda. <laughs> Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. The dish I eat the most often would be, it'll have to be seafood. So I would say it is for my really fast supper, it would be my prawn and greenie. Ooh, I just, yum. it's so fast to me. What's your secret? Getting really good quality prawns, really fresh ones. Um, if I can get them at the fishmonger, I will. Otherwise, the Dutchy or you know, the organic ones that they do in Rachel's are so good. Actually, I got that tip when I first moved here from home economic person and she was like you've got to taste them they're so soft and sweet and lovely so those it would be my kind of go-to supper I first I got on a frying pan with a little bit of oil very clean oil like rapeseed oil garlic fresh chili cook that for about 30 seconds and in go the prawns and then um you know makes you get a really nice color on them really good quality sea salt like cornish sea salt and i love their fiery pepper salt Ooh, which is um oh my god so lovely actually if i've got one i'll give one to you it is 
um, a blend of seaweed, black pepper and red peppercorns. And it's beautiful. And I pop that in. And then I, once they're done, I take them off the heat and then I give a little squeeze of lemon juice. A tip there would be not to squeeze the lemon juice. Like I see a lot of people doing squeezing the lemon juice on while it's cooking. Oh yeah. That stops it cooking, doesn't it? Well, what it does, it it, it gives it a different texture. So Mm -hmm. you'll get a very kind of, um, a kind of a wet texture on the outside rather than getting that lovely kind of grilled texture on the outside. So I put on the lemon juice then and then wrap then. Then when I have the linguine cooked, I pop the linguine, drain the linguine and I pop that into the frying pan with all of the other ingredients. And then I um, flip it all together so that the pasta is absorbing all of the flavors while it's all hot in the frying pan. And then I eat it and I always have a glass of lovely Chablis with it or something. I love my wine. Stomach just rumbled. I know what I'm having for supper tonight. (laughs) I'm going to have one of your delicious brownies. (laughs) So there are so many brilliant things about your story and your career, but I really love the story of how you got your first UK publishing deal. So you were, you were very persistent and I feel like that's a sort of common thread with your career, but I, I love that. And no, it doesn't mean a no. It just, it means a no right now. Well, everybody says no to me. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life, the first reply has always been, you're so lovely, but maybe another time. Okay. And so how do you then harness that and turn it into a yes? I go and cry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then one. I, um, and then I do a dance off probably. Um, I do find a lot of solace through music. I just love music. Music always inspires me. And I will, I don't think there's a day goes by that I don't have play one song very loud and lose myself for a little bit in it. And it, it's really important. It's always been that way. Um, and it sounds quite like a little, almost like a little bit fickle, but it's actually not. And genuinely it's helped me through moods and everything. And I, and I, promise you I have been told no for every single thing I've done for TV, for books, for restaurants, for everything. I've always been told no firsthand. And look at you now. So what is once you've you've played the music, you've done the dancing, how do you then go about changing their minds? Basically just trying to get all your secrets, Cluda. I know, I know. I'm really trying to think what do you know what I ha- I definitely have a fire in my belly. I'm so passionate about food. And I know about food. Like I, I'm very confident about my food knowledge. Yeah. And reason I haven't taken no for I just don't take no for an answer. I just think, oh, well, I am the only person that is in charge of my life. I'm the only person. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my life in my mouth. My parents worked so hard. I came from such an ordinary upbringing. And I've had to work hard from the word go, um, like most people, like I got a scholarship to university, got a scholarship to secondary school. And so it's, it's kind of a part of me. Maybe it's the fighting Irish, but I do a hundred percent believe we are the only people who can really change our lives Yeah, and we can change our lives. And I never think of my life as just, you know, this is my life now. I think like, oh, what can I do next? I always think of myself completely evolving. And even if you are one person who's making a decision about publishing my book, you don't think it's right. I, I think it's right. And I am passionate about it. And you're just one person. And I also respect that I have to earn a yes. And so I just keep going for it. But I have been told no all the time. How many of the nose that you've got, have you turned around with a cake? <laughs> Do you know what I have? Once there, have I turned those around the cakes? You know, the cake was actually on the restaurant one. I never bought okay, cakes. You never one. did the cakes for the book publisher. No, there were other. The publisher was my was, was the was the agent who was trying to get me work. Okay, and with her, I used to send her boxes of things from the market. I love this. Yes. And, and with it, I kind of send letters about the stories of what I was doing. And I knew, I remember at that time, I was doing so much in food. I was so on the ground level of this kind of revolution on food. I was learning so much that I just knew that there weren't other people that were, might be experiencing the same experience that I was doing. And they were all at that time when I was trying to get a book, it was, it was like the, the James Martins and the Nigellas and all the rest. They were the only ones who were doing really books. And I 
I, ne- I remember her saying that to me and I remember thinking, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, yeah. <laughs> I have never, ever compared myself to anybody in my life. That's a very special talent. Yeah. I can't, yeah. I, feel, I, gen- I mentally just can't. I, even if I tried to kind of go look at somebody else and so many people will say like, oh, who's your idol or who do you, who do you project yourself on, et cetera. And I genuinely can't see anybody because I'm so focused on my own world. Your own idol. Be your own idol. Yeah. Absolutely be your own idol. And I really don't, I always think what I, when I reach 70 or 80, hopefully 80, that when I'm sitting down and I'm looking back over my life, I want to have done all the things I want to do. And I think that's a really important thing to look at on days where you get the nose and nose and you come back and you have your dance off, whatever, and you're feeling a bit chirpier and you sit down and think about what is it that I want? Do I want a book more than anything in the world? Do I want to write a book more than anything in the world? Is, is that really what I want to do? And if it's really and truly what you want to do, and then think of the other things that maybe been been in your mind, pick out the one that is that you really want to do and then just uh, go for it. Just don't take no for answers. I feel very inspired by this clue. Watch out well. <laughs> Somebody will tell yes. you at some point. Yes. Otherwise you can publish it yourself. Yeah. You've got to keep believing that. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish. And I'm excited to hear this one because it's your go-to dinner party dish. And I know that you throw one hell of a dinner party. So my go-to dinner party dish, oh, you know, it goes by seasons. So I pay. As I said, I kind of I love seafood, <laughs> and the blood oranges. I don't know if you've seen them in my kitchen. Blood oranges have are at their best at the moment. So this is another one from my book that I absolutely love. It's my crab salad with blood orange, and very thinly sliced fennel and um, roasted hazelnuts on top, and it's got a little bit of creme fraiche just for the texture in it. That is so good as my starter, as my main course. Right now, it would probably be, would it be another seafood? Would it be another seafood? God, it, so I'm, if I'm going all out, like I did this for, I mean, it's a few months back now, but I did it for Christmas Eve supper. Oh, yeah, I did um, a grilled lobster linguine. Oh, yeah. And it is quite spoiling, but if it's a special dinner, um, you get half the lobster and then you grill it. You can grill it on a frying pan. It really only takes like 10 minutes to do. And what I do is I push a little bit of um, butter in the frying pan with some crushed garlic and some chili. And then I put the lobster still in its shell with the skin side down on top of it, on top of all the garlic and chili and everything. And cook that for a few minutes, then turn it over and it's done. It really needs very little. Sorry, I've steamed them first beforehand. Okay, yes, yeah, so you're just finished sorry. them off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I've steamed them first beforehand. <laughs> so if you're doing them for a supper, you can get them all steamed beforehand, cut them in half, and then that's all the only thing that's left to do. And then to serve with it, I'd made a very slow cooked, tomato, really thick tomato sauce with loads of fresh basil in it. Lovely fresh linguine. And so I serve like a big twirl of the fresh linguine with the slow cooked tomato sauce in it and then the grilled lobster on the other side of the plate. It's so good. Yeah, that sounds amazing and very fitting for Christmas Eve. I like that. And a new recipe that I came up with for dessert just a couple of weeks ago is a chocolate, rose water, chocolate mascarpone mousse. Oh my God, I will never make, (laughs) I will never make a chocolate mousse with butter or anything else ever again. It's mascarpone all the way. Oh really? That's a good tip. And I only did it because I had loads of mascarpone left over. Oh, but that's sometimes how the best recipes come about, isn't it? Yeah. What's so fun about cooking. Exactly. Not being tied down to rules and just using what you've got. And sometimes you come up with the best stuff. It is so good. This is going to be coming out on Valentine's Day. So, oh my gosh! Yes, yeah, so I'll give you the recipe for that. Oh yeah, that would be so nice with the chocolate mousse because it's not everyone. published published or anything like that. So okay, I'll give yeah, it to you. That would be amazing. So yeah, I mean, I guess that would be a very romantic meal to serve. Do you have a meal up your sleeve if you're sort of trying to woo someone? That would be Maybe it. Would be that, yeah. Hundred percent would work. One hundred percent. Are you wooed? I am. <laughs> Just thinking about it. When can I move in? Um, we have a cookbook corner on desert island dishes, and I want to know what is your most treasured cookbook. I think probably the one that inspired me most about, I'd say it was about sixteen years ago, um, and a food critic called John McKenna, no relation in Ireland gave me a present of it and it's called Crazy Water, Crazy Water Pickled Lemons by Mm. Diana Henry. Oh, yes. 
And her story, I, I had never heard of her. And I remember coming back from service one night and kind of opening up the book and reading her whole story. Um, and it was all about London and coming back from work and going into all of these different ethnical shops. And she'd bring them back to her flat and cook up all these different ingredients. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of um orange blossom water, the first time I'd heard of rose water being used in food and everything and all the various spices. And I visualized her, I visualized the colors, the smells and everything. And her, from that book, I remember cooking her Moroccan orange um, blossom cake and it was sensational. And that was quite an inspiring one. And then there's a second one. Yeah, tell me. It's Euphony Wishing Stalls, The River Cottage. And I actually reared pigs because of it. Really? Yeah, six piggies. <gasps> oh my goodness. Yeah, after I was so inspired by his book. Oh my um, God, that's amazing. Yeah, and I got to do it one years ago. You. No, I didn't. I should have. I should have. I actually called them names of different cuts of meat because I oh. thought that would keep me focused. Yeah, so chorizo, pancetta. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a good tactic. I like that. Right. We're on to the final desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh my God. That's such a difficult one. My salt baked potato with sustainable Irish trout caviar. Yep. That sounds pretty good. That is gorgeous. <laughs> um, and the caviar, I mean, the trout caviar is fantastic, especially the sustainable trout caviar. They only cost like you know, six quid for a big jar. And they're so gorgeous. They like burst in your mouth with like little surprise pillows or balloons. And as the main course, my last dish, and I'm off, what would it be? Dover sole. Ooh. Yeah, Dover sole a la manière. And then I'd have to have a side of um, spinach that would be cooked in cream and nutmeg. And then some really buttery mashed potato. And then for dessert, I would have... Oh, my thyme tarte tan. I love Ooh, it so yes. much with we orange blossom creme fraiche. Party. Yeah. It was amazing. That would have to be my my dessert. And then I'd have to have a cheese course. Well, yeah, obviously. So love a mix of delicious Irish and British um, farmhouse cheeses with lovely thin oat cakes. Mm. Yeah, and wines. Oh, really good wines. Like just before lunch. Rolos and Chablis and... Um, Runart, pink champagne, and yeah, it's going to be a feast. I'm then I'd very be much. Then I drop the mic. <laughs> Cloda, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget, you can come and find me on Instagram at Marginamora. If you're listening and haven't yet left a review, now is your chance. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, you can visit the website desertislanddishes.co where there's a whole host of recipes and lots of kitchen tips and tricks. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.